Hello, and welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Purry. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sibling, and a former athlete. I work full time. I am the founder of Rapid, a nonprofit organization, and I'm legally blind. I am so excited about opening the conversation about everything equity. We will primarily be talking about disability, as that is my lived experience, and it is often the minority left out of the equity conversation. I am passionate about equity for all identities, as I have family members from the communities of color, LGBTQIA, disabilities, and we span all ages. It is my goal to normalize these conversations, get people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and include everyone. After all, we are all human. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Purry, and I have another exciting guest today, Jenny Youngberg. And she is a licensed professional counselor, and so she is on her way and has some awesome specialties that definitely fit into this podcast. So thank you, Jenny, for being here with me. Thank you so much, Emily. Of course. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your identity, as we always talk about identity on this show, and then where your interest lies in the counseling realm of the work you do. Absolutely. So um, I am a recent graduate on the LPC track. So technically I'm in this interim called registered intern status, although I do practice like a fully licensed clinician would. Um, I identify as a queer clinician. My pronouns are she, her. Um, one of my niches is that I specialize in the intersection of trauma, addiction, and LGBTQ. Mm. Um, and I'm a big, uh, one of my passions is I'm a firm believer that it's addictions, a form of unprocessed trauma. And I kind of do a lot of work in trying to help reform the recurrent recovery model in community to be more inclusive to um, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a huge thing to talk about in the addiction space. Um, I think I mentioned that I did the education part of being an addictions counselor. I never did the practical as I was working full-time and all that, but um, definitely a passion of mine. And um, there are so many gaps in the system. It's, it's doing great work. Don't get me wrong. The system is doing great work, but there are a lot of gaps. And this is definitely one of them. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about it. How did you start going down this path specifically? Kind of tell us your background and then how you started wandering down this path yourself. <laughs> sure. Um, so I am in my mid thirties and I didn't start grad school till I was in my thirties. Um, but a large reason why I'm in this population is that my story is from this population as well. Um, I also didn't come out until my 30s. Uh, I grew up in a very small town, conservative Ohio, very religious background. And um, I graduated with my undergraduate in 09, kind of when the economy collapsed, part mm. one. <laughs> and so ended up in the restaurant service industry for quite a bit of time. And um, I noticed that even with my own addiction story, it didn't start out me feeling like I knowingly was in an addiction cycle. It was more just my environment, the community I was in. 
And then all of a sudden one day kind of realized, all right, I have a problem and I need help with it. Um, but I don't know where to go. And Mm -hmm. so I did end up in 12 step recovery model and there were great things about it, but I also noticed that some interesting things were happening for me, such as I started developing autoimmune conditions where I had hives over my whole body. Mm. And, um, I felt like, um, that I didn't have, I wasn't, I felt like that the recovery model that I was within kind of addressed addiction in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I noticed within my time in recovery communities that I felt a little bit of an outcast at times. Um, I, there were things that I knew pertained to my addiction story, such as the fact that I have known I'm queer for a long time, but also I didn't have representation or anything growing up where I came from. So I didn't even know how to work through that. And it wasn't until, um, I decided I wanted to go to grad school. And a large part of that was for my restaurant service industry community. I noticed that I had a lot of really deep, like friends that I cared about deeply who didn't have options because especially in that community, you make too much for Medicaid, you make too little for out of pocket and mm-hmm. you know, experiencing some of the harshest working conditions. Um, I think there's been a couple studies that show working in a restaurant can be more intense on your body and mental health than being a surgeon. Wow. And a large portion of that <laughs> comes from you are expected to have all, you know, to have that level of stress in your job that you don't get to save lives to kind of offset the toll. Like there's not yeah. kind of thing at the end of it that makes you feel like it was worth it. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Definitely. You don't get that reward other than a happy customer, which is great, (laughs) but it's not like saving a life. I could totally see that. And so that's, uh, when I, I originally thought that my addiction was more tied with the restaurant industry. So I moved out to Seattle. I was like, I got this. I'm going to change. I'm going to get out of the industry and realize, nope, it, it wasn't the restaurant industry. I'm still stuck in this. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into recovery first and then into grad school. But I started to notice, um, I had a lot of questions that my current recovery community didn't like. Yeah. And I kind of got told a lot, well, this is the way it is and this is how we do it. And, um, I wanted to see if there were other people out there that thought like me and found that in grad school. And it's been really amazing, but it wasn't until grad school where I even was able to see the intersection of how a lot of the struggles I had with my addiction were deeply integrated with childhood, especially repressing my queerness for as long as I had and being a hostile environment for it too, in a conservative Christian community. So yeah, I feel like my niche found me. (laughs) 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 I love that. And I love, I mean, I just want to state out loud and I know you feel the same is there are plenty of different recovery programs out there, 12 steps, smart. There's a bunch of different ones. Mm -hmm. And this is by no means a diss on any of them. If they work for the community, we want to make sure that you're seeking that help and Mm -hmm. you find the program that works for you. And I think that is kind of something that has evolved, 
but not within each group, like the 12 step, it, it, not looking at the diversity of the humans that might be in that program. They might not believe in the God part of the 12 step or the, mm -hmm. um, you know, all the, the different aspects of many programs, but finding the one that works for you, I think is key and not shaming any of them. They're all great. They mm -hmm. all work for some people and they work, don't work for others. And so I think that's really important to mention for folks out there. This is not a this on any program. No, it's not. Um, 12 step was hugely beneficial in my mm -hmm. own story. And I still have many dear friends that are within that community. That's always a community I will support. I do, however, want to also say that for me personally, I also like to advocate for that abstinence is not the only recovery model. And mm -hmm. I know that I'm going to probably raise some hairs and, uh, <laughs> Where my thinking on this comes from is that uh, as we're starting to learn more and more about um, how much our environments can impact us mm -hmm. from a young age and how it forms blueprints, that there are specific people and especially specific populations. Um, I definitely want to say BIPOC, the queer community as well. There's a lot of social conditions that happen within those communities mm -hmm. that can add towards addiction and that we have to be careful and that sometimes that is a person's only way that they've ever been able to self-regulate and abstinence can be a dangerous format for them if they don't have the proper tools yet and learning how to have a healthy way to self-regulate, how to, oh, like, I'm even going to throw it out there. We've been harmed by communities a yeah. lot, especially mm -hmm. organized communities. And so just the fact of walking into a recovery meeting can be incredibly traumatizing. Oh, absolutely. For um, those that have, that don't feel a part of um, that there are, others out there that can connect with that so absolutely yeah and this has come up for me in in the disability realm of you know a lot of programs a lot of recovery programs are in old churches that aren't uh, you know accessible physically accessible they're in you know off the 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 beaten path if you will like there's no mass transit like there's a lot of barriers in recovery for folks with disabilities and yes. so just like everything in this pandemic there's the good and the bad that have come of this. And I know there are more people with the, in the disability community accessing services now that they're they're on Zoom and people can get yeah. to them. So mm -hmm. there's these, these pieces of information that are creating barriers to success and recovery. And um, I think slowly but surely we'll get there. Um, why don't you go back and talk about that intersection of trauma and LGBTQ and really expand on how these things intersect for that population. Hello everyone, I am so excited to introduce to all of you Tim Salen, the sponsor of our podcast today. And Tim is with Remax Equity Group, and man, he's different than all the thousands of agents you probably already know. When you're looking to buy or sell a home, and you want somebody who cares, you want somebody who is patient, you want somebody who gives great advice, and you want somebody who is going to get you what you need, you need to call Tim. Absolutely. So traditional recovery spaces, and I am going to be referring to um, Avenues New York. They're an organization that okay. I 
admire their model and everything. Um, traditional recovery spaces typically function on heteronormative cisgendered um, norms. Yeah. So even to this day, there's kind of like the women stick with the women, the men stick with the men. Um, but like you were saying, there's not really a place. I think at this point in time, last time I looked was there might be between 20 to 30 meetings in total um, for queer um, non-binary identifying folks within traditional recovery spaces, um, which like is actually nationwide or where? Uh, well, see, it's starting because of what you brought up with Zoom and the online platform. Oh, gotcha. Okay. There was a resurgence of, I think there's a lot more. This was back in, I want to say the last time that I saw that data was like this over this summer. So I do want to say, especially being out here in PDX and the Seattle area, there is a lot more, but yes, traditionally there hasn't been a lot. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And a lot of times in the recovery model, there's kind of a singleness purpose, which is to carry the message to the suffering alcoholic, but not to bring in personal anecdotes or trauma histories or anything like that. Um, And so that can be really hard to navigate when for a lot of people, well, specific populations, a lot of their um, trauma can be directly related to their race or their gender identity. Mm-hmm. And so racism, violence, social stigma, systemic oppression. Um, and when you're not allowed to, I think, bring that into within the recovery community, it can be a lot more damaging because a lot of times the self-abandonment, which is what I like to refer to the addiction cycle, um, comes from being abandoned by friends and family as well mm-hmm. as, you know, not having a safe space to be in. Yeah. Um, Oh. Well, and even if you bring it up in a, you know, let's say a normal, I say that in quotes, where it's pro- pre- predominantly white, predominantly cisgender uh, group, let's say you go to a group and you actually get there, and then you do bring up your racism or uh, the trauma around racism or your trauma around being LGBTQ, and then you don't get a response from the folks in the room, or you get a negative response, like, oh yeah, that doesn't <laughs> exist. I witnessed that a lot. <laughs> and so then you're like, well, why am I even here? And then you immediately feel excluded again, or, you know, they feel like it's an excuse. So that's an excuse for you to use. That's an excuse because they don't live that identity. They don't understand the trauma around that identity because they don't, they don't experience it themselves. And I think that that's part of like where the flock mentality can get really tricky too, mm-hmm. because people want to feel a part of and to feel seen and heard, but especially um, most recovery spaces are white dominated. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I think there's a huge fear that can happen at times if people feel like the flock might get disrupted. The problem with that is that I personally believe the flock does need to get disrupted (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, uh, I'll give an example just from my story because I'm a, a cis white female, even though I'm queer identifying, I'm straight passing. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of time, I know in my own experience in recovery communities where um, a lot of times, you know, we tend to have bad boundaries. Like there's been a lot of social programming that's happened to us where we aren't, you know, at our strongest. We're pretty mm-hmm. vulnerable when we come into these spaces. And, you know, unfortunately, like 
there can be some bad apples in recovery spaces and um, like sexual abuse is one that's pretty prevalent that still can happen. And so there's not really a way to currently, there's not really anything set in place for trauma informed or anything to do with how to maybe navigate if mm. that's, that's happening for you. Um, so Wow. question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, it's, it's, so I'm, I was just lost in like the imagining that piece of it, just being trying to disclose the trauma piece and disclose the stuff that's coming up for you and being rejected still. And it continuously happening in the supposed safe space. Yeah. And I watched it happen with BIPOC with queer people consistently almost like every every time that I'd be in a meeting then there's the sponsor component too which I think is a great part of the practice but um it's very interesting especially if you come from trauma which current research shows between 75 and 85 percent of people that are in addiction recovery have PTSD Mm. over 86 percent have had sexual abuse and things of those nature that um we're susceptible to be recreating patterns that we have lived in that because they feel familiar and safe. Yeah. So, um, I even know with my first sponsor, I picked someone that had a lot of similarities to a past abuser (laughs) because for me that felt comfortable. I knew how to interact with that. And And you don't um, consciously do that. You just now can reflect back on it and see that's how our brains have evolved because our brains are wired to feel safe. And so even though it might not be a safe situation on the outside, it is for our internal processing. Cause it's yeah. like, Oh, I know how to deal with you. Cause uh, you're my mom basically, or, you know, and there's almost, it helps with the addiction cycle. I like to kind of reference the addiction cycle to the DB cycle where a lot of times, you know, people, it's so hard to get out because of the manipulation that happens where substances are great for, (laughs) you know, feeling like you are in control of what's happening in a sense. Um, Like in control, like I don't have to feel this right now or something of that nature. And so when we take that away, with the abstinence-based model. Um, I know like for me, I had undiagnosed extreme anxiety, like Mm. that just skyrocketed, took off and I didn't know what was going on and doctors didn't know what was going on because I didn't even have the tools to like understand what was happening. Like, why was I having these like rashes everywhere? And why was, you know, just all these little anomalies, which is so funny. Cause once I get into grad school, I'm like, oh my God, this makes so much sense now. <laughs> I wish that I had just had a basic understanding even of how, um, how much our, our younger stories, our younger selves and our younger environments completely impact our blueprint and model for what we carry on later on in life. And if there isn't you know, someone that's able to have an intervention, which therapy, great. Um, I also didn't have a therapist when I was in recovery because I felt like, why if I have all these other people helping me? And so I have to, 
that that was the most beneficial, I think, aspect for my personal recovery journey was to be able to have a safe person finally, where I could start to process some of these things in a different light, in a different way. Yeah, definitely. No, you bring up a lot of good things and it's just like, you know, I know this is not even comparable, but it does draw the comparison of like, you know, through our childhood, we teach our kids all these algebra and calculus and all the stuff they don't typically use in the world unless they have a job that's, you know, tailored towards that. But financial wellness, financial health, we don't teach them. Um, no. And then we throw them out into the world. But then our also our, our mental health is something that we stigmatize to the point where you don't need it until you have a problem. Well, once you have a problem, whether that's anxiety, substance use, whatever the case may be, then we're trying to backtrack when we're in this state of complete chaos. Mm -hmm. And our brains don't know what's happening, but if you are more mentally prepared for it going into adulthood, like let's address some of the trauma, let's address some, of it. it's almost like mandatory <laughs> therapy to graduate high school or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Just even how to properly, um, emotional attunement. Yeah. A, yeah. A lot of like the older kind of research, like to state that addiction is, a, is inherited like a disease. But I like to argue it's inherited through the biological standpoint, not mm. so much like that it's a disease you're born with. It's more the environment likely that your parent was in is how they're going to recreate their parenting environment and so on. And so it's almost like the dysfunction of not even knowing how to properly attune, like with even a mother being able to like attune with the baby, um, and if you come from a family where addiction is really prevalent, a lot of times that doesn't happen because there's a lot of disassociation and numbing going out through the substances. And so it's really, really fascinating mm -hmm. how much like to me, the biological model <laughs> just makes the most sense. The attachment theory model too. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's Brene Brown who has listened to a podcast and she has addiction in her family. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was, was, they were listening to a podcast with, uh, Dax, I can't remember his name, but he's open about his addiction. Um, you know, celebrities and Tim Ferriss, I think is the other one that was on there, but she said that, you know, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. 100%. And so, so having that kind of basis and, and there's addiction in my family as well. So it's like, okay, so this may always exist and that's, that's fine. It doesn't mean that you're going to be an addict and all these things, but you have to be careful about the environments in which you put yourselves in, especially like my, you know, my son's 17 and getting ready to leave the house. And it's like, you may already have these underlying things and that's, that is what it is, but whatever the environments that you're put in, you know, consciously or, un or unconsciously. And I think that's, it's, it's so important that I think, like, like you're saying as children that we even recognize that and say, you know, that wasn't a healthy environment. <laughs> and this is a great point also to bring in intergenerational trauma and mm -hmm. how much that can impact. And like, in particular, um, I like to kind of look at what happened with first nations and native Americans mm -hmm. in terms of they were one of the subgroups of people where you can see the direct data of all the horrific things that happened between the schooling, the ripping people away from families, the murder, like taking away everything. And then this 
this community tends to get stigmatized the most for having addiction issues and oh, yeah. being labeled and whatnot. So um, when we look at um, First Nations, Native American, because this is also a population that is very prevalent in Oregon and in Washington. Mm-hmm. And so that the, due to the level of historical trauma, as well as the biggest one being that their children were ripped away from them and raised in completely abusive, horrific environments yeah. where they were not given, been able to have that attunement, that attachment with family to their culture, to the spirituality that of course addiction is going to result because you have to look for a way to self-regulate that's that you have access to. Absolutely. And when, yeah. And so, um, and it's, it's, I feel like it's that way with the BIPOC community, BIPOC community, as well as the queer community in general too, because something that's not talked about a lot is that a lot of times the first real true safe spaces for the queer community were bars. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this very glorified culture and that like, that that is where, you know, the community is a lot of times. And so if someone's trying to navigate recovery, it can feel even more isolating Yep. because, you know, there's an expectation that that is something that you partake in. Yeah. That's how you hang out. That's where you meet mm-hmm. your friends. That's how you yeah, move forward. And yet the isolation piece is really familiar to the disability community as well as, you know, it's, it can be hard to navigate or, you know, go party with your friends, even at the bars. And it's a lot easier to just drink a bottle of wine at home (laughs) and try to figure out how to, you know, socially connect with people. Um, And that's, you know, what Rapid's really working on is finding a healthy community for the disability community to connect um, through our app that we're developing. And that's one of the main reasons is that isolation for any community can be devastating. It can Mm -hmm. completely turn people towards things that they don't necessarily want to be turned towards, but they have that need for belonging and community so badly um, that they have to find it somewhere. And it's usually, it's not usually, it's often is in an unhealthy environment. And yeah, and that goes into play to kind of what we were saying with the restaurant industry and Mm -hmm. that like you don't have any options. And a lot of times with the hours work too, access to meetings is not even available. Yeah. Um, Such as also there's the stigmatization that can happen in absence-based recovery models where, well, you're putting yourself in danger because you're working in it. Like this expectation that it's just easy to pick up and choose a whole different avenue, which is also a form of oppression because, you know, there, that's not an option for everybody. (laughs) So, you know, and that's where that privilege comes in from dominant culture. It's, it's saying you, you have choices, you, you can do better. You just, you know, bootstraps mentality, you know, work harder and do better and be better, even if you're being pushed down the whole time. And I also want to bring up like uh, acknowledgement to the chronic pain community because mm. that was a community that I saw got a lot of harassment too as well within recovery communities in that, you know, just because you can't visibly see it per se, like doesn't mean that that isn't a very real thing for the person going through it. And mm-hmm. also like even a shout out to the single parents and stuff in recovery communities where, you know, they might be going through hell <laughs> at home that they can't get away from, or even people in domestic violence situations. Mm-hmm. And, like there's a lot of variable factors 
where it's really not fair to assume that that person has the same access to the recovery model as the rest of the group, because it's not true. If their trauma is ongoing, especially being BIPOC, like Mm -hmm. that is something that is a hundred percent of the time, that trauma. So, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. It plays into all of it. And it just like the chronic pain is the one that I'd identify with just because of my knee injury. And it's not only the pain that you're in the physical pain, and but especially if it's a, you know, a permanent disability that somebody has experienced um, going from able-bodied to disabled and they're experiencing this chronic pain. And it's not only the pain, but it's that trauma that has caused the pain. I remember being so angry every time my, my knee was killing me because of the injury I experienced and that it wasn't my fault and that somebody should have covered that hole and somebody should have, and just all that pain and trauma that it, that, that the, the physical pain would inflict on my mental health. And I would just get so angry. And so there's the both pieces of the actual physical pain and numbing that, but also numbing the anger of what may have happened in a car accident, in a bicycle accident, whatever the case may be. And like in a, in a, with the opioid addiction and which started out as the crack addiction too, I like to say as well from the eighties is that it, we have the data to prove that people that have experienced high levels of trauma, um, the ACE score, something I like to use a lot, adverse childhood experience Mm -hmm. and that the higher up, because that's on a one to 10, the higher, the more you have that there's no way you're not going to be wrestling with addiction at some point. Like, even if you have all the tools, just because of the fact that a lot of what's on the adverse childhood experience score is when you were younger, developing your blueprint for how you're going to process and be in this world. And so, um, yeah, it, uh, there's not a lot of education on why you might be drawn to certain substances too. Exactly. So I think we talked about this before, like opioids in particular, um, for people who did not get to spirit, like experience, um, like proper, um, self-attunement from a caregiver or parent, Mm. um, uh, it is, uh, opioids in particular are the closest synthetic to attachment and feeling a bond, um, kind of in the paternal maternal caretaker sense. And so a lot of times that'll happen. Like you, someone will come in with a sports injury, um, and get put on these high levels of narcotics and then they can't get off of it. And they don't understand what's going on when somebody else might be able to get off of it right away. Yeah. Yeah. So So I was physically addicted. Definitely. Um, my body was not happy trying to get off those guys. Um, but it's interesting that I was not mentally addicted to it. Um, I did not, but I have a very healthy relationship with my parents. I had that basis, um, but I wanted to get off of them and my body was definitely tripping out, but (laughs) my mind was not, that was not difficult for me. But whereas, you know, more alcohol and those things are tricky for me at times because I think it's bringing my anxiety down. It's my self coping for anxiety. So it's interesting, like you said, the different reasons people gravitate towards different substances for sure. And alcohol, um, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to cuss, but I'm going to say is a tricky bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It does do that in the short term where reduce the anxiety, but then it ramps it back up tenfold a couple hours later and get into the vicious cycle Uh Um, as well as, you know, it's socially acceptable. It is 
horrifying. I think when I went to recovery, realizing how much we were bombarded with it in every aspect, like one of my favorites was going to baby showers where it's like, you know, someone's pregnant and like their expectation is to get all their best friends drunk. And like, you know, where that's not even necessarily celebrating where the person is at who the party is for. Exactly. That is a funny one. That's an ironic one. Never thought of that, but yeah. And how much, you know, especially summertime, summertime barbecues, drinking beers, hanging out in the backyard. And for me, as we host a lot at our house and it's like, if I was to stop drinking, what would that look like? And, and people saying, oh, you're not drinking. Oh, you're not this. Oh, you're not that. And my sister's never drank. And she gets all the time. Oh, you don't drink. Then you don't want to hang out with us drunk people. Like, and so it's this whole social norm that people either fit in or don't. And then the people who don't get, you know, not attacked, but you know, there's always somebody saying like, oh, why aren't you drinking? You know, it's not you get harassed. So yeah, harassed. Yeah. Because uh, I have friends that are currently online dating and doing all that. And they, I keep hearing horror story after horror story of like people feeling entitled to know why you don't do it. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't know you, but the first question they'll ask on a date is why don't you drink? Did you have a binge drinking problem? Like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this isn't, you don't deserve access to this information, but there's also kind of that societal, I think where people were taught that they can, or that they do get to have that privilege to know into some story. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter. Like it's, and it's the stigma. So, okay. So what if I do say, yes, I'm a binge drinker. Are you not going to date me? Yeah. And so then it becomes that stigma of like bad versus good when so many people deal with this. I mean, look at the numbers of alcohol sales in Oregon. It was up like 82% or something during COVID. Yeah. It's a problem. even bumped up with my credentialing and that yes, addiction is my niche, but in Oregon, in order to get the proper accreditation, one of the questions that they asked for is, have you, have you, are you in recovery? Have you experienced addiction? And if you click yes on that box, they require you to provide written proof that you are still practicing complete abstinence-based recovery whether through a letter from a sponsor or from an organization. And I can't tell you how infuriated that made me when I moved here from Washington and saw that because it's like, for me, I didn't end up going to a rehab facility or anything like that. And I no longer am affiliated with the recovery community that I started out in. But so it's like, do, do I lie? and say that I'm not in recovery because I don't do whatever is deemed the proper way or do I say yes and run the risk of, you know, getting in severe trouble with my licensing board. So, (laughs) wow. I didn't realize it was, yeah, that's, and that's, that's like some of the check boxes that happen in a lot of communities. Like, do you lie Mm -hmm. and tell and then when you're found guilty or whatever, if you, you know, lie, because there's, no way to prove, then, you know, it further stigmatizes that community. Oh, well, those, those people always lie, you know, just stereotyping. Mm -hmm. And, but really they're not looking at the root cause of why did I have to lie in the first place? Because yeah. And it's really hard to, and that I think in, in those, I mean, I haven't taken the classes per se, so I more want to defer because I know that you have 
Um, but that there's kind of an expectation that um, a lot of times you can't work with individuals unless they're practicing complete abstinence. Like I know counselors who are like, like if they have a client that comes in stoned, they'll be like, we, I can't see you today. Whereas, you know, for me, it makes sense. It's like, well, yes, this client is terrified out of their mind and they're trying to regulate because it's very vulnerable and it can be terrifying to be in a space where, you know, you're working with a therapist. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times I think people in the addiction recovery community experience further stigmatization when they try to reach out and get help. But, you know, there's all these conditions that prohibit them from getting it, even if Absolutely. they're lucky get therapist. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah, they did teach that, that you, you don't send them away, especially when they're under the, the, uh, like uh, under the influence, especially with, you know, alcohol and, and drugs that might inhibit their driving skills, but then you, you don't, gosh, I would have to really look, remember what they said. You try not to cause further harm is the bottom <laughs> line. And by completely dismissing them, that might cause more harm. And saying you can't, I can't see you. So I think it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to sift through and it's a lot to know what's best for each client. But I think the bottom line is, is each client's going to be different. Yes. And this is what I think reformation needs to be brought into recovery communities is that if it works for you, that's amazing, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it has to work for the next hundred people. Exactly. Exactly. So and, and if, you, if you, if it doesn't work for you, you're not a failure. I mean, I think that's exactly. the thing, especially with recovery, people relapse and have that shame and that guilt and all that yucky feelings inside. And then they try to go to a, a, a group and it doesn't work for them. And that just amplifies that they're a failure and that they, they suck and they screwed up again. And how, and I think that's the piece we have to really you, you got to find what works for you. And just because one, the first thing doesn't work for you, you're not failing that program. It, I think it's really important to notif not notice that and recognize it. Yeah. And that is the DV cycle in a lot of ways. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I like to advocate that relapse is a part of the recovery process. Mm -hmm. The boxing is a part of the recovery boxes. Like, so is methadone. Like, you know, there's a lot of people that have used that you can't put anything into you. Um, but again, like I'm actually just getting ready to join an organization here in Portland called PDX U Users Union. Oh. And what they are is a union for people who are in active addiction, where we kind of campaign to help um, provide safe consumption sites that have access to mental health care. Um, oh, as well cool. The boxing and methadone and did the jail system, because a lot of times our incarcerated populations, we already know aren't treated as human beings. No. But um, yeah, to be denied access for, you know, withdrawals or anything like that to help with that is just mind blowing to me. Especially when we know that the prison systems are also getting drugs somehow in the system. So it's not, it's not stopping the problem by making them suffer. It's not yeah. changing the behavior. They're just going to find a way to do it and possibly get in trouble because they get caught but we know it's happening. And so why aren't we doing something more proactive and more open to just suffer and figure it out? And uh, kind of my last job, I worked with a specific population, which is the CSEC community, which mm -hmm. stands for commercially sex sexually exploited children. 
And a part of the narrative that I found missing in a lot of um, rehabilitation facilities for the specific population is that a lot of times they would come in with severe addiction issues because pimps or whatever would get them hooked on it as a way of keeping the system. And so I would have girls, um, I worked mainly with female, female identifying youth would come and tell me like, no, like addiction. I only got into C-sec because of my addiction issues. Like I understand what went wrong there. I really need help with this addiction piece, but because 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the, the system, I'm not going to call it any specific system because it is the entire system sees it as you're too young to really be there yet. And so, you know, plus there's not safe places for them. Like I, uh, have been at recovery meetings where young girls will come from other places and like that component we were talking about where, especially if they're susceptible to, um, sexual abuse and whatnot, they're more susceptible to being drawn to those, those people within recovery communities and the cycle perpetuates. But, um, I, it's very hard to get uh, these teens addiction care that understands all the complexities because almost all of these clients are BIPOC too. And so it's kind of, it's just, to me, there's such a disconnect and understanding how all of these avenues truly intersect. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was very heartbreaking when I would have clients get put into facilities that refuse to address the addiction piece. Oh, and so, or didn't have the right, um, tools or training to deal with it too. Because if you bring in a girl off the street, that's coming off of meth and heroin and alcohol all at the same time, it's going to look a lot like psychosis. And when that girl's popping off and destroying rooms and stuff like that, they want to chain her to a, to a hospital bed and put her in psych when what she really needed was just a safe place and somebody who understands the detoxing process where she's not having that shock to her system. Yeah. Oh yeah. I worked with the domestic violence team, uh, when I was with the County and man, it was an eye opener for me. Definitely something I never understood prior to that experience and, and just the manipulation and the, especially from whoever's the abuser to the community they're abusing. And how much, how much drugs and substances play into that. And, and even just in a domestic partnership, you know, we get, we get drunk, we get high, we do whatever. And then I'm able to control everything you Mm -hmm. do. And it was just, it was just mind open, mind blowing to me and so sad. And just, uh, it's, I I wish more people could be educated around, especially domestic violence to understand Mm -hmm. that's not just leaving. That's not just how it is. Um, No, not at all. There's so many more factors involved. And that, and that I think that's like you're saying, and like we're talking about it's with all the minority communities, these communities who have been oppressed, who have been shamed and shunned and all of these things. And uh, no wonder they have to find refuge in something. And it's, it's not always a positive one. And what they have access to, like it is a known fact that if you go into minority dominant neighborhoods, you're going to see a liquor store. Yep. Every four or five blocks. Much more than a healthy grocery store that's affordable. Yeah. And we're taking away the grocery stores, like Mm -hmm. literally these food deserts and then creating, you know, we also know that there 
law enforcement has been involved with planting drug zones in certain minority neighborhoods and stuff mm-hmm. too. And yeah. so like, it's just, you know, I, there's no way out. Like there's literally, <laughs> that's your only, you know, what you're given. And then you're inflicted with so much trauma, like just being who you are, just being alive. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, it, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, and it will be interesting. I've been talking to a lot of HR folks lately and um, you know, what return to work looks like. Cause we've been, there's been people at home day drinking and day using. And so at one point they were at work and for the last year and a half, they've been at home. What does this look like when we all go back to work and how is addiction and substance use and, you know, those things being addressed before people get back to work. Let's bring it up. Let's start talking about it. Let's making sure we have the resources available for folks. And then it's not this horrible, horrible you know, uh, thing where you get fired for coming back and having this experience because like everyone, we're all trying to deal with trauma in this, in this environment. And some people's only way is to do, you know, different substances all day, every day. And right now, and particularly with, I want to say our community mental health clinicians, Mm -hmm. the amount of secondary trauma that has happened in the past year and Something that I noticed too, is that it's very interesting to me that clinicians that don't have to put the label of, um, being in recovery, they don't get drug tested. <laughs> they don't have, because they can't, because if I, I can tell you right now, if the community mental health clinicians of the world had to go through that, there wouldn't be any because of how much secondary trauma is going on. And, um, and so for the listeners, what would secondary trauma look like that you're speaking of? Well, the first one is pay inequity. Um, so mm-hmm. for community mental health, like you're expected to have a master's degree and to have, you know, a whole year of unpaid work. And then once you do get paid, they want to pay you 19, 20, $21 an hour when your student loans are like $1,600 a month, let yeah. alone the of your bills. There is um, a glorification of burnout culture where you can't even provide adequate care to your clients because your caseload is triple what mm-hmm. a healthy amount. Then you have insurance <laughs> who likes to deem how you do therapy and how many mm-hmm. sessions you're allowed to have. And then with this high burnout culture, you have, you know, a client that might've had six clinicians in the past six months because they cycle through people, just chew them up, spin them out. And, um, you know, especially during COVID and everything that happened, something that happened to me is I was doing my internship where I was working unpaid and I was in the restaurant industry and I lost both my jobs due to COVID within a week of each other. And I was expected to show up and be as present for my clients who I'm not even getting paid for. Um, dealing with the fact that I didn't know if I was going to be homeless in two weeks because I had no income anymore. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's really sad because you, as a client, like for me personally, I have such a heart for that population, but it's literally impossible to maintain that work environment. Most people burn out within three to four years. And there's Um, such a need right now. I mean, how many... (laughs) I know people are trying to get counselors and they're like, everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. And there's such a need, but then there are people who have gone to school who are trying to, 
you know, get into the work work space, but still have that year of non-paid experience. I mean, mm -hmm. together before they can, you know, actually be paid at a reasonable rate. And like me as a single woman, like I don't have someone else's income to help get me through it, um, which is that's another important thing to bring up that um, there's a lot of groups of people that should be the ones in there, such as BIPOC, queer, mm -hmm. identifying. Um, but due to the fact that we don't always have the same access to financial stability and all these other factors, like for a lot of us, like us even being able to get the degree is so mind blowing yeah. that um, there's a lot of harm in that the clinicians that are able to exist within that realm and stay that might not, you know, there's, I'll, I'll just say it, there's a lot of white clinicians that haven't had a whole lot of multicultural competency or mm -hmm. any of those factors. And they don't realize that they're necessarily inflicting harm. And then the clinicians that have all the training and have that background can't get into the system because they can't financially make it. And so yeah. kind of another perpetuation of the cycle of abuse, as well as it's no secret that all of <laughs> psychology is based on white male European bias. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, just now, I feel like in the past 10, 15 years is diversity and inclusion even getting brought up in curriculum. Yeah. Like it's mind blowing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've definitely um, talked to some other practitioners and I'm excited to see some, especially black owned and black operating yes. mental health um, organizations, I'll say, and just to see it out there and be able to culturally identify with your practitioner and or at least that they've had the education and the knowledge even if they are white or you know mm -hmm. a dominant culture like that that it's been brought up and talked about that not everybody's going to fit into this white box that is you know white male cisgender etc cetera, etc cetera, able-bodied and so yeah I I'm glad to see some popping up but it's not nearly as many as we need in order to take care of the community that needs it. And unfortunately, the system it makes it even harder in a lot of ways, <laughs> too. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's something, a positive I will say that I have been noticing is mm -hmm. that um, more therapists and social workers are kind of starting to organize and creating their own practices where yeah. they can also access and service Medicaid clients for underrepresented populations that have their own rules where they're getting away from the big, large warehouse, you know, community mental health facilities where there's so much dictatorship on what yeah. can happen. And so um, that's been really, really exciting um, to, cause we do have a lot more power and mobilization. than I think we're starting to collectively realize that I think as a society, especially a lot after this past year, Absolutely, but that yeah. the road to reformation is, you've got to be able to do some scary stuff, which absolutely take those risks. Yeah. Take those risks. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Is there anything you want to wrap up with before we wrap up? Um, I think that it's also something that got me more abundantly clear to me in this past year is how much we really need to rally behind those clinicians in our field that do identify as BIPOC mm. and 
queer or the disabled community um, in that, okay, that I do think that it is a responsibility for us white clinicians that are out there to um, really understand that a large part of this reformation process is we have to get uncomfortable. Yeah. That we're going to have to be the ones that rock the boat. We're going to have to be the ones that are, you know, for a lot of us might be the first in our generations of our lineage to stand up and do these things. And, um, you know, that might look like having to leave a job, which is something that I did um, most recently because diversity and inclusion was something that they said that they did not want to be involved upon. So, mm. um, <laughs> it's not an easy road. And if it's feeling easy for you as a clinician, then I'd like to encourage you to maybe um, get more involved into understanding systems and whatnot. Um, and I think I added that the organization I challenged them to, you know, really learn about diversity, equity, inclusion, expand your horizons and make sure yes. your clinicians are being educated, whether they're white or not, but there are all different privileges that exist in this world. And to make sure that, you know, you have an expert in LGBTQ, you have an expert in the BIPOC community, you have an expert in disability community, but everybody does have at least a base knowledge around those things. I think that is key for the organizations in order to truly start serving the uh, recovery community. And it will reflect on you as you will be more successful if you are more diverse in your approach, I think. And as a company culture too, like, you know, the BIPOC staff or the queer staff, like don't assume that they're there to be your teachers because they're not. Mm -mm. You need to be doing your own work. And that was something that was, really infuriating for me and oh, yeah. mental health too is how that culture is still deemed like okay like to go ask Becky when Becky's already dealing with everything else on her caseload the experience of being a BIPOC person having to work in these horribly oppressive situations like so and then being yeah. tapped on all the time about yes. certain situations yeah. yeah and not getting paid for it or compensated for it either exactly <laughs> so, exactly yeah. yes definitely don't tokenize but definitely get get in there get start mm -hmm. the journey if you haven't already and you'll be more successful if that's the only thing you care about instead of just doing it for the right reasons being more successful in the recovery of your clients the the uh, success of your clients is going to dramatically increase if you're willing to make those steps. And I have to say it was such an honor to be able to even have this conversation with you because I feel like you are one of the people out there that have been paving that road and are doing it and are providing, you know, opportunities for companies and stuff to have the expert and to provide a model for other people to see, I can get compensation. I can, you know, go down this route and have my own rules and ways of doing it. And I just think that you're, it's so incredible what you do. So <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. I am, I'm glad I have the platform and I'm glad I'm able to um, use it to, for, to better the community, all the communities. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's the bottom line is my family is so diverse in the communities in which we are involved. I'm a white woman, but I have the disability aspect. My husband's black, my kids are mixed. My, we have LGBTQ in the family. We have everything in the family. And so it's mm -hmm. extremely important to me 
that if any of my family members needed specific help and help that I, as a white woman, couldn't understand, then where am I going to mm-hmm. turn them for help? And that's mm-hmm. where you start to see these gaps. And so we'll just keep fighting. I mean, that's what we do. So thank you so much. We are going to drop your email into the show notes. And if you are looking for help or resources around, especially the LGBTQ and addictions community, you can reach out to Jenny and she can help guide you, guide you in a, to a place that you, where you belong, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. And we will um, hope to talk soon. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Human Is My Label. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, families, and coworkers. Get out there, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, include everyone, and push yourself to be better every day. If you're interested in coaching or corporate training or learning more about RAPID, visit us at rapidorgan.org. That's R-A-P-I-D-O-R-E-D-O-N dot org. You can find me at emily.curry on Instagram and all my other social handles are below. Have a great day and can't wait to see you next week. Thank you.